Dr. O'Donnell was the first layman to receive both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. He has taught at St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, and at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He is a Knight Grand Cross and the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, and he is a consultor to the Pontifical Council for the Family. He has written numerous books and has appeared numerous times on EWTN. He is married and has nine beautiful children and two beautiful grandchildren that I just saw the other day. And I would say something even more important and more beautiful than that is Dr. O'Donnell is a faithful, ardent Catholic that has dedicated his life the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's an honor for me to welcome back, now for a third time, to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you, Salatina. Thank you all very much. It really is great to be with you. We should begin with a prayer. Uh, icon of Our Lady, that's very gracious of you, but she's a lot better looking than I am. So let's, let's turn to her and invoke her blessing on this evening's reflection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Paul. St. Margaret Clitheroe, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good evening. It really is great to be with you. I love coming here, and I hope you will support Sebastian in this great undertaking. It is a wonderful program, and I feel greatly honored to be here to be part of it. Uh, it is the Pauline year. How many of you have done anything about St. Paul this year? Okay, of those who put up their hands, how many of you have read any of his epistles? Wow. This year, wait, 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 wait. This year? Oh, this really makes me happy. He's one of my favorite saints, and he always gets a real bum rap. But it was interesting, when Pope Benedict announced this year, the year of St. Paul, he said in his general audience of July 2nd what he hoped would be achieved through this year. Would you like to hear what his hopes were? Okay. And this is the goal of the Pauline year. This is Pope Benedict. To learn from St. Paul, to learn faith, to learn Christ, and finally to learn the way of upright living. Isn't that beautiful? Sounds like a tonic for the modern age, doesn't it? Learn from Paul to learn the faith, learn Christ, and then from that, the way of upright living. Faith means nothing without works, right? If it's not put into practice, and we live in a great age where there's a huge need to put things into practice, especially as things continue to devolve around us. Let us begin by reflecting, as we think about St. Paul, reflecting upon God's providential design. In St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, we read the following thing, and some of the alumni from Christendom may remember this passage. If you don't, Say three Our Fathers and three Hail Marys. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 reads as follows. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now that expression, fullness of time, means that there was a period of preparation, getting everyone ready for what? The great event of history, the Incarnation, the most important central event in human history. The existence of Rome and Rome's imperium at that time, the Pax Romana, the fact that the entire world during the reign of Augustine was in a state of peace, the great temple of Saturn in the Roman form, the doors were closed because the whole world was in a state of peace. That was very much part of the divine plan. The fact that Judea, that remote region, had been conquered by Pompeii in the year 63 B.C., 63 years before the coming of Christ, it had been incorporated into the Roman Empire. Very significant. Pompey enters Jerusalem. The Jews don't want a Gentile to defile the temple. 12,000 Jews fall and are slain trying to stop Pompey from coming into the temple. They're all slain by the sword. Pompey walks right into the temple, opens the great sacred curtain, and enters into the Holy of Holies. Looks around. We don't know what he thought. Probably thought these were the strangest people in the world. Walked out and said, I want sacrifices to be resumed in this temple. And so the Jews continued on with the practice of their religious faith. But with the difference, they had been incorporated into the Roman Empire. According to the church historian uh, Eusebius, he tells us that Tertullian said that the emperor Tiberius was very favorably disposed towards Christianity. What he had heard about it. Isn't that interesting? That was the emperor at the time that Jesus was executed. But he was favorably disposed towards Christianity. Now, in our reflection this evening, St. Paul's journey to Rome and the persecutions, we want to examine God's providence in Paul's life and the significance of Rome. How many of you have been to Rome? Oh, gosh. what a good, That's like asking a Muslim, have you been to Mecca? All right. <laughs> in this group. That's great. That's great to see. But I think we'll find that in the writings of Paul, there was, there was sort of like three phases. There was hope as far as Rome. There was hope, second phase that turned to disappointment. And then eventually hope restored and vindicated at the end of it all. But let's begin with Christ in the Gospels. That's a good place to start, don't you think? Because we learn from Paul. What do we learn from Paul? The faith and Christ. All right. So what was Christ's attitude towards Rome as we find it in the Gospel? Well, there's a number of key passages that are very intriguing. You might remember there was a centurion who had a servant who was very ill. Now, these are the occupying Romans. And Jesus gets up to go into his house, which would have defiled a believing Jew. Very shocking. And then the centurion says what? Words that we still have in the Mass. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter into my, under my roof. Only say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. Now, that's a Roman centurion, backbone of the Roman army, and Jesus is going to work a miracle for him. But more than that, what does he say? He marvels and turns to everyone around him and says, I tell you, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Remember that? And many will come from the east and west, and they will feast in the kingdom. He's talking about a Roman centurion, enemy forces, Gentile. Very high praise coming from our Lord. 
Then there's the question of St. Matthew. If you've ever been to the Church of St. Louis in Rome, remember there's that great Caravaggio, the call of St. Matthew, where Jesus is sort of reaching out a finger, pointing at him, and there's light shining from Christ's face on Matthew. And Matthew's got to point me? <laughs> Tax collector. That means he's a friend of the enemy Romans. He would have been on the fringe of Jewish society. And yet he takes a tax collector, someone who was cooperating with the Romans, and makes him one of his disciples. Is that significant? Yes. Remember, nothing in sacred scripture is there by accident. Everything has a purpose. Remember again, when they try to trap him, the enemies come around try to trap him in his speech, and they ask him about, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Notice, he doesn't say, you shouldn't give tribute. What does he say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So does Caesar have rights? Are there certain things that should be rendered to Caesar? Yes, there are. And then, of course, when it comes to the question of Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, remember that in St. John's Gospel... The other Gospels too, but especially in St. John's Gospel, Pilate says three times, this man's innocent and tries to release him. Do you remember that? This is Pilate. I tell you, I find no guilt in this man. Three times he will try to release him. Furthermore, his wife, who we know was a Roman woman, a noble Roman woman, in the Gospel of Luke, sends this cryptic message to her husband. And she's a Gentile. And what does she say? Have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man, affirming his justice, affirming that he's righteous. For I have suffered greatly in a dream because of him today. I guess that's Roman siesta. But you wonder, what was in that dream? But here you have the wife of the procurator, a Gentile Roman woman, also coming saying, don't interfere with this man. Don't interfere. And Pilate tries to set him free. And then, of course, it's very interesting when Pilate's hand is finally forced, when he finally has to go and give consent. I'm not defending Pilate, but three times he tried to set him free. And it's only when they say, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. And that's when the Jewish leaders, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Ooh, ouch. Really? These people hated the Romans. We, but they hated someone worse. All right. I mean, there was an unchaining of demons in the Passion. Have no mistake about that. All right. But then what does he do? He sends him off to be executed after he's scourged. But what does he put on the cross? A messianic title. A messianic title written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the King of the Jews is a messianic title. That's why the Jewish leaders go to Pilate, and what do they say to him? You should have said, this man claims to be the King of the Jews. And what does Pilate say? What I have written, I have written. Now, we don't know what Pilate's faith was, but the first proclamation of Jesus' messianic identity on the cross, done in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, comes from Pontius Pilate, where Jesus is given the messianic title, the King of the Jews. Then, of course, tradition calls him Longinus. You have the Roman centurion there, right? And notice what is said, seeing the manner of his death. 
said, Truly this man is the Son of God. Seeing the manner of his death. Well, how did he die? He died as a common criminal. But you want a proof of Jesus' divinity? He's nailed to the cross. People are mocking him. You destroy the temple and mocking him, ridiculing. And what comes out of his mouth? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's a divine statement. That's a divine statement. And that Roman centurion hears that sees enemies taunting, and hears this man in excruciating pain, pray for those who are doing this to him. And then, of course, how did he die? Looking up to heaven, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he gives over the spirit. How great to be back in the Father's hands, right? Out of the hands of men who treated him so horribly. And so, he acknowledges him as being divine. Now, this is sort of speculation. It's a little bit of a side. We will get to our topic eventually, but this is all part of a development. The Romans, if they captured an enemy who had fought very nobly, there was something they would do. It was a mercy-type blow where they would take a spear and kill someone quickly by piercing them between the second and the third rib, striking the heart so they would die immediately. But it was a tribute to the enemy who had fought nobly. It may be possible that Longinus, when he thrust the spear in the side, was actually giving tribute to the nobility and the courage of the way this man died. Isn't that interesting? I can't prove it, but that was common in the Roman army, and it might have been possible because, according to Roman law, the piercing of our Lord's side was a violation of Roman law and Jewish law. Jewish law, once a man's dead, you can't touch the body you become defiled. And according to Roman law, crucifixion always ends with the breaking of the legs. But none of that happened, and his side was open. That's why John goes ballistic. And immediately there gushed forth blood and water, all right? which of course was a great sign. Now, interesting to see how the Romans come across in the Gospels. They come across pretty good, don't they? I mean, if you look at it and sort of objectively see what's being said here. Now, St. Luke, along with the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, all involve a geographical movement which is unmistakable. They all, the Gospels, start in Galilee, and they all end up where? Jerusalem, right? Palm Sunday. It's the culmination of the Lord's ministry. Now, St. Luke is the only evangelist who wrote a sequel to his Gospel. It's called Acts or Acts of the Apostles. It's a follow-up. And it's very interesting that just as Luke in the Gospel goes from Galilee to Jerusalem, all Scripture scholars, including Protestant Scripture scholars, will acknowledge this. There is a geographical movement in Acts of the Apostles from Jerusalem to Rome. From Jerusalem to Rome. Acts of the Apostles ends in chapter 28 with the arrival of St. Paul in the Eternal City. Rome is very important for us. Emphasizing Luke's theme of Catholicity and the universalism of the church. That's why you have these key figures in Acts that keep emerging, right? St. Stephen, the first martyr. Remember Stephen? Judaism can't contain the Christian message. It's going to break beyond Judaism. Cornelius in Acts of the Apostles. The first Gentile to be baptized, right? And what is he? Roman centurion. God sends an angel to Cornelius and tells Cornelius, send for the man Peter. Why? Because you needed the rock, the chief shepherd of the church, to bring in the first Gentiles. It's not Paul who brings in the Gentiles. 
It's St. Peter is the first one, and it required Peter's authority to do that. Then, of course, after that, you have Paul introduced in chapter 9 of Acts. Starts off as Saul, but he's going to become Paul. And then eventually, after that, you have the Great Council of Jerusalem, and then all of Paul's missionary trips, but everything culminates in his arrival in Rome. Rome is part of God's providential plan. That's why for Catholics, it's one of the great spiritual experiences of life to walk into St. Peter's Basilica, walk into that square. You know what that's like for the first time. When you walk in there for the first time, it's like coming home, right, in many, many ways. And it reminds us of the historical reality of our faith, that the man who spoke to Jesus Christ, his bones are right under that dome. This is not some myth coming out of the East. Our religion is a historical faith based upon real people who lived at specific concrete times and who spoke with the Son of God who became man. Now, there can be no historical doubt that Peter, Simon, son of John, Simon Bar-Yona, who became, got the nickname Kephos, which means rock in Aramaic, was the universal shepherd. He heard from Christ, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He labored in Rome, he died in Rome, and that is the historical foundation uh, for the bishop of Rome having the apostolic primacy of Peter. But this evening, what I want to do is go to the guy who also was really important and tends to be neglected. It's one of my favorite saints, St. Paul. I used to love him because he wrote me letters. I used to look up to my mom and say, because the only other Timmy I ever knew was the kid in Lassie. I'm dating myself, but there were, nobody, nobody was named Timmy except the kid in Lassie. But a reading from the letter of St. Paul to Timothy, I thought, oh, wow, somebody's writing to me. So I took, him, I took that as my confirmation name, St. Paul. Although my kids are convinced I took it because of Paul McCartney. It's not true. It's not true. I was a Beatle fan, but that's not why I took the name. All right, let's take a look at St. Paul, who labored so much for the gospel. And he really was God's chosen vessel. And he is the apostle of the Gentiles. So in a special way, he should be our guy. All of us should have an intense devotion to him because of the expansion of heart. Even though he's the Jew of the Jews, he had such an intense love for the Gentiles and the mystery that they were going to be incorporated into the church. He was a man who was seized by the love of Jesus Christ. In one of the great passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, where you know they're sort of putting him down and he has to boast. He doesn't like to boast, but he feels sometimes you've got to do that to make an impression on people. But listen to what he says. And just, since it is scripture, drink it into your spirits, take it in, and let's reflect upon what kind of man this man is. So he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I, to speak as a fool, am more. In many more labors, in prisons more frequently, in lashes above measure, often exposed to death. From the Jews, five times I received 40 lashes, less one. Because Jewish law, you couldn't go over 39, right? But five times scourged, oh, four, okay, five times from the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Thrice I was scourged. Now that's a Roman scourging, just what our Lord got with the cat of nine tails. Three times. Now those kind of scourgings could kill a man, all right? A lot of times that was a capital type of execution. 
Thrice I was scourged. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and day I was adrift on the sea. In journeyings often. In perils from floods. In perils from robbers. In perils from my own nation. In perils from the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea in perils from false brethren, in labor and hardships, in many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those outer things, there is my daily pressing anxiety, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I am not inflamed? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that concern my weakness." What a man. Okay, what does that tell us? This guy loved Christ. He had encountered him. It was the defining moment of his life. He would do anything for Christ. And the sufferings, is it any wonder that St. John Chrysostom says, the heart of Paul is the heart of Christ. If you look at St. Paul, you encounter Jesus Christ. So configured was he to Jesus Christ. He was seized by the love of Christ. Now, Peter had laid the foundation of the Roman church, which Paul praises. In Paul's letter to the Romans, when you you want to know how a church is doing, look at what Paul says at the very opening. If there's no expression of gratitude or thanksgiving, things aren't going well. All right? But if there is some praise, look at the type of praise. Most of the time, the praise will be for a particular geographical region. When he comes to the Roman church, it's unlike any other praise in other epistles. In Romans 1.8, he says what? First, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed all over the world. Now, that's very significant. Why? There's a mission in Rome that is universal. Your faith is proclaimed all over the world, not just in Achaia, I like when he's writing up to the church at Philippi, not just in Achaia, not just around Greece, but all over the world. And then he goes on, he says, For I long to see you. I want to impart a grace to you and to receive comfort from you. Isn't that interesting? Paul himself is going to receive comfort from the Roman church. Now, why is the Roman church thriving It's a predominantly Gentile church. Why is its faith known all over the world? Because at the foundation of it was the fisherman from Galilee, St. Peter. That's why in Romans 15, verse 20, he says, I have not gone where Christ has been named, lest I build on another man's foundation. That's why I have not come to you. Okay? So who laid the foundation in Rome? Why was it thriving? It's St. Peter. That's why he had not gone up to that time, even though he wanted to go. But he expresses this ardent desire to go and to see that. Now, this desire to visit Rome was all part of God's plan. And that's the main thing that I want to communicate. It was important that Peter go there because he's the head of the church. But Paul also is the apostle of the Gentiles. And that's why the church always celebrates those two men together, right? It's the solemnity of Peter and Paul. And just as the Pope has inherited the Petrine charism of strengthening the brethren and confirming them, there is also, and John Paul II developed this a little bit, there's also a Pauline charism since Paul preached in Rome and died in Rome just like Peter. 
So those two princes of the apostles shed their blood together in the city of Rome. Now, how do we know it was so important that Paul go to Rome just like Peter? Well, a lot of people read Acts of the Apostles and miss this, but there are four passages I'm going to share with you tonight that I just ask you to reflect with me upon. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 10, we read as follows. And just listen, I'll read it to you. Passing through Phrygia and the Galatian country, where they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they tried to get to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And Paul had a vision one night. A Macedonian was standing appealing to him and saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. As soon as he had the vision, straight away we made efforts to set out for Macedonia, being sure that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, many church historians writing on that passage recognize what's going on here. The faith had been spreading off to the east almost exclusively. They're told not to go east to Asia, not to go north, not to go south. They're told to go west to Macedonia. You know how significant D-Day was in World War II when we hit the beaches at Normandy? Defining moment. Well, in spiritual history, when he goes to Macedonia, when he goes west, this is a spiritual D-Day. This is the first time that Paul takes his missionary outreach in a westward direction towards Greece, which is eventually going to lead him to Rome. So the definite idea that God wanted him to go in a westerly direction. You go next to Acts 19.21. And this is a very interesting passage here. We're in the spirit. And after all this, Paul resolved in the Spirit, and it's uppercase S, in other words, in the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, Paul was charismatic, full life of the Spirit, right? So he resolves in the Spirit, what? That I must see Rome after going to Jerusalem. Now you keep moving. So there's this gradual revelation. You go to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And what do we find there? This is after he had been arrested and he was thrown into the barracks in Jerusalem. Remember, he, there was a riot in Jerusalem with the Jews. This is the guy who's been causing all the disturbances all over Greece and pulling people away from the Mosaic Law. And they start to beat him up. But guess who saves him? Roman tribune. Roman soldiers save him. Now, this is what happens in Acts 23. And as the dispute was becoming violent, the tribune, fearing lest Paul should be torn to pieces by them, ordered the soldiers to come down and take him by force from among them and bring them into the barracks. But on the following night, the Lord, that's Jesus, stood by him and said, Be steadfast, for just as thou hast borne witness to me in Jerusalem, bear witness in Rome also. End quote. That's the words of Jesus. Just as you have done this in Jerusalem, do it in Rome also. And who wants him in Rome? Jesus wants him in Rome. Bear witness in Rome. Eventually he goes on and he makes an appeal to Caesar. You have the great boat ride that was very unsuccessful. Remember, they got shipwrecked at Malta. We just went there. Very St. Paul's Bay, which they still preserve. We're actually there on a stormy day with waves crashing and wind blowing. You could really imagine how a ship could be destroyed there. The Glovers know what I'm talking about. All right, very, very dramatic. But just before the ship was ready to break up, 
And this is what happens. And this is in Acts 27, verse 23. They're in danger of shipwreck off Malta in the bay. And so Paul speaks to everyone on the boat to reassure them. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me saying, quote, Do not be afraid, Paul. Thou must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted thee and all, this to thee and all who are sailing with thee, that they're all going to be saved. All right? But God wants him. He must stand before Caesar. From these passages, we can see that God wanted Paul in Rome. And of course, what's Paul's attitude towards the Roman state? What did he think of the Roman state? And the Roman state had legitimate authority, even though, remember, who is the Caesar at this time? It's Nero. Nero. You think we got it bad now, all right. Nero kills his mom, kills his wives, kicking her to death when she's pregnant till she hemorrhages and bleeds to death in front of him. Guy was not just crazy, he was evil, all right. But what does he say when he's speaking? In his letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, you can go look up the passage. But he says, let every person be subject to the higher authorities, for there exists no authority except from God. And those who exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, he who resists the authority resists the authority of God. And they that resist bring upon them condemnation. For rulers are a terror, not to the good work, but to evil. And he goes on to give a very stirring defense of the legitimacy of political authority. And in this context, it's the Roman state. Now, one thing we want to notice about Acts of the Apostles, and I just go through very quickly through this, that every time there's a Roman in Acts of the Apostles, look at it, underline it, and find out what the attitude is towards the Roman. And you will find it's very positive. It's very favorable. In Acts 10, you have Cornelius the centurion. Peter preaches. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's baptized along with his whole household. So it's a Roman military man, the centurion, the backbone of the Roman army, who embraces Christianity in the first great opening of the door to the Gentiles in Acts 10. On Paul's first missionary trip, when he goes to the island of Cyprus, there is a Roman uh, governor there by the name of Sergius Paulus. He accepts baptism. He be, he's converted by St. Paul, believes in St. Paul, and becomes a Christian believer. The only time the Romans look bad is when Paul's preaching at Philippi and there's turmoil and the Romans beat him and throw him in prison. Then he comes out and says, is it your custom to beat Roman citizens without a trial or accusation? And they're all terrified and said, please leave, we're so sorry. All right? But he uses the Roman citizenship thing to remind them of their obligation and justice that they have. Then, of course, at Corinth, there's a horrible riot, and the Jews in the city try to stir up a persecution, and the head of the synagogue named Sothenes, they drag Paul before Sothenes, and Sothenes says, if this is a religious dispute about your law, I'm going to have nothing to do with this. And then the mob turns on Sothenes, Paul gets free, and they end up beating up Sothenes, you know, and Gallio doesn't do anything. Then there's the riot in the temple, the tribute and the cohort and the centurions save Paul. When Paul tells the centurion in the tribune that there's a plot to kill him, that then the centurion and the tribune get together and they give him a military escort, a cavalry escort. They take him out by night to Caesarea by the sea so that he will be safe and he will be protected. Eventually, he'll make an appeal to Caesar and Festus acknowledges innocence, said if he had not appealed to Caesar, I could have set him free. 
another centurion by the name of Julius of the Augustan cohort, which was a very prestigious Roman, Euro, uh, Roman regiment who was obviously serving for a brief time in Judea, but was obviously stationed in Rome. He was put in charge of St. Paul for the great journey to Rome, but was very impressed with Paul, treated him with great kindness, and Luke is very positive. And then when there's the shipwreck at Malta, they're afraid that some of the prisoners are going to escape, and so some of the Roman soldiers get ready to kill all of them, because if a Roman prisoner escaped, you could be penalized for whatever they were charged with. But then Paul talks to Julius, and Julius says, do not harm them. And all of them swim to shore, and they're all safe, and eventually they all make it to Rome. And then Julius, of course, when he goes there, hands him over, and you can imagine how joyful it is when they're walking up the ancient Appian Way, and then Christians from Rome come to greet him. Paul is stirred. He takes heart. And then how does Acts end? It ends in chapter 28, verse 30 to 31, where it says, Paul spent two years in Rome in his own hired lodging, but he taught with all boldness and unhindered in the capital of the empire, and that's where Acts of the Apostles ends, with that culmination in Rome. Now, it's important to remember, Paul was there in prison, but with great freedom, for about two years. There's a lovely little church in Rome, it's called San Paolo alla Regola, that for the Pauline year they've opened up, and you can go visit there, and it's the spot where Paul was in prison during his first Roman imprisonment. But remember, it's while he was in that eternal, in the eternal city from Rome that he wrote some of his most important epistles. They're called the captivity epistles. He was there from 60 to 63. He wrote the letter to the Colossians from Rome, where he talked about Christ's divinity as the creator of the universe and the redeemer of all mankind. And then at the very end, he was under a form of arrest which was called custodis militaris, where you would be chained on your right hand to a Roman soldier. So you would have that all the time. And at the end of Colossians, and I always think of this when you could picture Paul writing on the parchment, he says, I, I, Paul, sign this in my own hand. Remember my chains. So you could almost hear the chain sort of clanking as he gives his signature at the very end of the letter. So Colossians was written out from Rome. In addition to that, the letter to the Ephesians was also written during his Roman imprisonment. And of course, that really emphasized the headship of Christ and the unity of the church. And we have to think he must have been very much inspired by Roman government and that sense of unity. And of course, at the very end of that letter, it, he must have been inspired by his Roman guard, because remember, that's where he says, put on the helmet of faith, the shield, the breastplate, and all that. And he's talking about all these Roman armaments, which probably the centurion guarding had on, including the shield that can extinguish the darts of the fiery one, because the Romans had these really great shields that had two metal plates, and there was this sort of real dark, heavy wood in the middle, that if there was a fiery dart that was a big thing used in warfare, burning arrows, it would hit that and would be extinguished immediately. And Paul knew that. I probably said, what, how do you use the shield? And he probably talked about it. So all of that Roman military image gets into the letter. Uh, then, of course, his letter to the Philippians, the happiest letter, the most joyful, where 11 times Paul just says, rejoice in the Lord always, even though he's in prison. He says, again, I say rejoice. And some people are preaching the gospel out of jealousy. And he says, it doesn't matter as long as Christ is being proclaimed. And he says, rejoice again, I say rejoice, even in the midst of suffering. 
And then at the very beginning of the letter, he says, the word here in Rome is being spread even among the Praetorian Guard, even among the, who were the elite force that guarded Caesar. And at the very end, he says, the word is also spread even in Caesar's household. So this is really the culmination. And then the last letter that we know for sure that he wrote there was the beautiful little one-chapter letter to Philemon, all right, who had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. And if you ever want to see a real, how Christianity really was a leaven in society, Paul doesn't come out and condemn slavery. But when you read the way he treats Onesimus, he says, Receive him as a brother most dear in the Lord. Receive him as if you're receiving my own heart. All right? The Romans treated slaves as if they were tools. They weren't even human. If you, a, return, a runaway slave, if he came back, could be branded on the forehead with an F, could be crucified for fugitivus, all right? could be crucified, all right? and yet Paul sends him back to his master knowing that Philemon will receive him as a brother in Christ. Perhaps he went away from you that you might receive him forever as a brother most dear. You can see how that type of letter and teaching is going to topple the institution. That's one of the reasons why when you go to the Roman catacombs, the Christian burial grounds, unlike the pagan grounds where oftentimes you will see servus, serva, slave, word never occurs in the catacombs. You see brother, you see sister. It's a beautiful, beautiful tribute to the power of the heart of St. Paul. Now, after that two-year imprisonment, Paul was released. Evidently, the Roman court found him innocent. We don't know what happened at the trial. Maybe the report didn't come from Judea, was delayed or something. He was set free. It is believed, according to tradition, that he went to Spain. The English say he even made it to London and preached where now St. Paul's Cathedral is. That's the ancient tradition. And Paul was such a traveler, it doesn't surprise me at all that he might have made it to England. Probably made it to Ireland, too, for all we know. As the Irish say, if it's not true, it should have been. But anyway, <laughs> but we're sure, we are fairly certain that he made it to Spain, but then eventually something happened, and he got arrested again. There's an ancient tradition that he was arrested at Ephesus and then was dragged to Rome and was actually imprisoned with Peter. And uh, the last letter that he wrote from Rome, which is actually a captivity epistle also, is 2 Timothy. That's the last letter he wrote. And unlike the other ones where there was a sense of joyful expectation, in 2 Timothy in 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I am being poured out as a libation, poured out in sacrifice. And in 4, 16, it almost breaks your heart. He says, at the trial, everyone deserted me. No one came to my defense. And so he's really wounded. The only one left there is Luke his dear and glorious physician. But then he says to Timothy, please come, please come visit me. So even Paul at that moment in the midst of the suffering had that anguish, that sense of loneliness and abandonment. But he says, nevertheless, he rejoices. Why? Because here in Rome at this trial, that all the Gentiles may hear the gospel proclaimed. So his final witness, he's found guilty. He is imprisoned in the Mamertine prison. The tradition is there was a final embrace between Peter and Paul. Peter, being a Jew, did not have the dignity of Roman citizenship, dragged off to the Vatican Circus and was crucified there, upside down, according to the uh, Tertullian. says, crucified upside down. And probably was buried in a shallow grave with great haste, And even the bones that we have discovered tend to confirm that because we have bones to all the different parts of the anatomy except for the feet. Because probably with the removal of the body, we took the body off, all right? 
after, a scour- after probably a very brutal scourging. St. Paul, being a Roman citizen, was taken out on the Ostian Way at a place called Tre Fontane, the three fountains. There he was beheaded and sealed in total isolation uh, and then was taken and buried. But the beauty of all this is now you have this magnificent basilica, St. Paul outside the walls built over, and just recently within the past year, if you've been reading about this, they have identified his sarcophagus. They have it. And now when the church confessio, you couldn't go down there before, now everyone can go down there. They've put in plexiglass, and you can actually see the subterranean region, and you can actually look at the sarcophagus, and you can actually see the sarcophagus of Paul, which is directly under the main altar. Uh, wonderful thing to go see, and the confession is open there. Now, what happened? Paul loved Rome. Luke loved Rome. There seemed to be such joyful expectation everywhere around. Well, a couple of things happened. In 64, there was the fire that spread through Rome, devastating fire, which even Tacitus admits that Nero was the one who started. If you've ever seen the movie Quo Vadis, it's a fairly accurate description of what that would actually transpired uh, at that time. Nero, as the emperor, as the supreme lawgiver, as the Pontifex Maximus, fashioned guilt upon the Christians. The problem is that set legal precedent. Once a Roman emperor had said that the Christians were enemies of the state and pronounced, let the Christians cease to be, in order to widespread persecution, that became a legal precedent that any emperor could then invoke at a whim at any time. So that started things, the blaming of the Christians for the fire as a scapegoat. But then in addition to that, remember, Christianity still was associated with Judaism. And in 66 AD, you had the Jewish rebellion, right? The great Jewish war, which our Lord had made a prophecy about, all right, starting in 66. And the Romans sent their best general, Vespasian, along with about 60,000 legionaries to begin this horrible siege of Jerusalem. The siege lasted for almost four years. There were a million people hiding in Jerusalem. Many of the Christians, remember when the Roman eagles began to gather, remembered the prophecy of our Lord, and they fled to Pella, and they were saved from this thing. But there were about a million people cooped up in the city, and eventually they began to starve. There was no place to bury people. Bodies were just being thrown over the wall. Josephus gives a very graphic description of this. But in the end, almost everyone perished. Uh, There were about 97,000 Jews who survived that horrible siege. Vespasian eventually was called back uh, to become emperor, and Titus was the one, his son was the one who was there for the destruction of the temple, which fulfilled literally our Lord's prophecy that not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. That happened, and that prophecy was literally fulfilled in the most profound way. But the 97,000 Jews that survived were enslaved and were brought back to Rome. So... That association of lack of patriotism, scapegoat, eventually is going to cause a problem. Now, this should not surprise us that the Church of Christ would be persecuted can be seen from the life of the founder himself, right? Jesus Christ was persecuted. Even when he was born, he had to flee as a refugee, go to a distant land. They tried to kill him as an infant, all right? Then during his life, on a number of occasions, they tried to stone him, and eventually he will be crucified. He told his followers that persecution and suffering was inevitable, and it's a good thing to reflect upon in Lent at this time. Anyone who would be my, if you would be my disciple, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And his listeners knew what a Roman crucifixion was. Criminals would always carry the cross to the point of execution as a portion of degradation and humiliation, and then would be crucified. 
And then he says, there'll come a time you'll be put out of the synagogue, you will be whipped. Well, there'll come a time when people who kill you will think they're doing a service to God. Now, of course, the great persecutions, there were 10 great persecutions in this first 300-year period of history uh, by the Romans. And the number 10 is more symbolic. Orosius was the Catholic historian who talked about that because there were 10 plagues of Egypt, so there should be 10 persecutions. Uh, but actually, there were 10 emperors who were involved. The first group, Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, and Maxim the Thracian, were mostly local persecutions. They would break out at times and there would be intense persecutions at Carthage or in different parts of the empire. But the last ones, from 249 on, of Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian, were systematic efforts to try to wipe out the Christian religion. And why was that? First of all, the Roman state and the emperor were considered divine. A sign of patrium required you to burn incense, if asked to do so, to the image of the emperor. Christians were very happy to pray for the emperor and would pray for the emperor, even at the sacred liturgy, but not to the emperor. Subtle distinction. Right. So that became a real problem. Whereas the Jews were an ethnic group, the Christians transcended a narrow ethnic group. It was truly universal. And they taught the existence of a higher authority, that there is an authority even higher than the state, even higher than Caesar. That didn't sound well to pagan ears. And also Christianity taught that it was an, it was an exclusive religion. Not that everyone wasn't meant to join, but Christianity was true. The other religions were false. The Romans would welcome everybody, another God, another God, but the Christians wouldn't do that. So this was cause for serious suspicion. The educated also saw that it attracted a lot of poor, the riffraff. A lot of slaves became Christian, even though there were members of high society, Roman senators that became Christian. A lot of slaves became Christian, and that bothered them. Remember the rebellion of Spartacus happened just shortly before the birth of Christ. The Romans were terrified at the thought of a slave rebellion because that rebellion, Spartacus defeated two Roman legions. It was, and that's, that was remarkable. Of course, they were gladiators. They were great fighters. But still, that really left a real sense of nervousness on the part of the Romans. In addition to this, we have to remember that pagan worship was tied to priestly families that sold idols and made a lot of money off the selling of sacrificial meats. All right? If you're not buying the meat and you're not buying the house, it's bad for business. And so trying to stir up... Remember that passage in Acts where they all go around and chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, Great is Diana of the... A lot of it was the merchants that were upset because the Christians weren't going to the great temple of Diana anymore. And then also because the Christians met in secret, they were accused of gross immorality. There were all sorts of rumors about incest. Why? Brother and sister and kiss of peace. That's not Vatican II, by the way. Kiss of Peace goes way back. All right? It's an ancient liturgical tradition that you would show that sense of unity before the celebration of Eucharist, but also accusations of cannibalism. And you can understand why that might be the case. All right? It's an argument for the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. There were even some of the pagans that said they killed an infant and stuck it in bread dough. But you could see where they would, would get all that. Probably someone went to a Christmas liturgy, all right? But these things were very common, and so whenever disasters would come, the cry would always be death to the martyrs. But Christianity spread despite that. And why did it spread? First of all, above everything else, because of grace. 
there was a divine assistance. When Christ said before his ascension, he says, Behold, I am with you all days, even unto the very end of the world. Christ was there, strengthening the martyrs, giving them this incredible courage, where even small children, women, would go through horrendous sufferings, but would do this with this type of serenity and joy. Some of the acts that were were their eyewitness accounts, their love for one another in the arena, the way they cared, the disdain for death, that they knew they were going to Christ. This was something that moved the pagans in the most profound way. The zeal of the converts. You know, when you became a Christian, you became a missionary. One of the beautiful teachings of Vatican II in its document on the laity is that the laity are called to be missionaries. We can make the church present in the world in a way in which oftentimes priests cannot. But we're all called to be that way. And that's not something new. That goes back to the very foundations of Christianity. When pagans would leave their children abandoned because there was a birth defect or something that was wrong, and this was very common, you leave them out for exposure, the Christian women would go and they would pick those children up and they would bring them home and they would baptize them and raise them Christian. Had a profound impact. When slaves could be treated as brothers, had a profound impact. In addition to this, the fact that it was the one true faith. There was a universalism. It was for everybody. When our Lord says, everyone is welcomed at my Father's table. There was this reaching out and this embracing. Go back to the letter of James. You know, If someone new comes into your community, if he doesn't matter whether he's rich or poor, you treat him with the same dignity, the same respect. That was a social revolution and something that spread powerfully. And then in addition to this, they really recognized that Christianity was good news. We're so jaded today. You know, we take so much of our Catholic faith for granted. Um, do you know what it's like when you have a really good confession? I mean, when you really prepare, unlike the five-minute, uh, here's the list, and you go and you do it. When you really take maybe a half hour, spend some time, and go deep, And then you go in there, and then the priest raises his hands, dripping with the blood of Christ, and says, and I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, and they're gone. And you come out from that, and you know that feeling, all right? Imagine what it would be like to live in a world where that was not possible. You fornicated, you slandered somebody, you were unfaithful to your marriage vows, you murdered somebody. And there's nothing you can do. That's hell. That's the world before the coming of Jesus Christ. When you hear that your sins can be washed away, be they scarlet, they'll be white as snow. All right? That's good news. That is good news. And then also the promise of not just future life, some of the pagans believe that, but eternal life. That when you die, you behold God in face to face. Like St. Paul says, I see now darkly as through a a mirror, but then face to face. I will be known even as I know. And I will know even as I am known. Incredible, great news. Universal brotherhood, eternal life. That's why if you look at Pope Benedict's pedagogy, what's his first encyclical? Deus caritas est. We've got to remind people that God is love. And if he is love, what's the next thing? (laughs) Space salvi. Saved in hope. All right? Then you can have hope. And you know that he's going to write an encyclical eventually on faith. Right? 
All right. So that's all part of this. Now, think about St. Paul for a moment. Think about St. Paul. Such hope for Rome, such hope for his Gentiles, and yet the Roman Empire turned and became a great persecutor. And yet we know what? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul, some people might have thought Paul died in oblivion. Who would ever think what was going to actually happen there? But his life, his epistles, they were not lost. It's preserved in Acts. His writing in his epistles preserved down. His Roman martyrdom, his sealing of his life, shedding his blood in that city was a key part of God's providential design for the church. And then eventually, when you have the shock of a Roman emperor after 300 years of persecution looking up into the sky, and what does he see? He sees the sign of the cross, and he sees words that say what? In hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. And he puts that sign on the top of the Roman legions on his soldiers' shields, and he's outnumbered four to one, and he wins the battle. And then he enters the city of Rome, and he goes up the Via Sacra, but he doesn't go to the temple of Jupiter and offer sacrifice, and he refuses to do it. Why? Because he has accepted the Christian God. I have to think that in heaven, St. Paul was smiling, because remember, after his address in Athens on the way to Corinth, when he's thinking about that, that three-day journey, and what does he say? I resolved when I was among you to know nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that's what he preaches, Christ crucified, right? Stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who believe, it's the power of God. And it was that power of God that eventually took Rome and transformed it from the seat of the persecutors to the seat of the Catholic universal, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I think we owe a great deal of that to St. Paul. Thank you very much. Five minutes, match up five questions, and the question has to end in a question mark, otherwise you just kick them on out of here. Okay. So that means I that means I have to answer in 20 seconds, right? Okay. Ding, 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 Okay, what? Yes. Uh, what scriptural study um, book or do you recommend for the laity to study St. Paul's, where we're bouncing off the of church teaching instead of coming up with our own interpretation? Uh, well, Ignatius Press Bible study is excellent. You could look at that. Uh, Navarre Bible study has excellent commentary. So Navarre Bible study or Ignatius Press. Uh, there's a beautiful one, a beautiful little thing. If you want something really practical, uh, that the Confraternity of the Precious Blood puts out called, I think it's by Father Paul Sullivan, it's called My Meditation on St. Paul. It's a small, I mean, fits in your pocket, but he just takes Pauline passages, sort of explains them, and then you have a concrete application to life. How do I live that passage? It's really good. Magnificat has also come out with, a, for the Pauline year, also a series of, you know, a nice volume thing. I think Ignatius Press publishes that. But My Meditation on St. Paul is good. Yes. We also have a number of um, audio files on our website uh, on talks that we've had on St. Paul here, and Dr. O'Donnell's will also be posted on our website. That was 15 seconds that wasn't mine. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Professor O'Donnell, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. My pleasure. Great number of scholars have cast serious doubt 
on the authorship of six of the 13 epistles, which by tradition are mm -hmm. written by Paul. Mm -hmm. Both of your beloved Timothys are out, as are Colossians and Titus. Colossians yeah. and Ephesians. Mm -hmm. Are they right? If not, why not? And oh, what should we as faithful Catholics think about scholarship that revises our traditional beliefs? Oh, in 20 seconds? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Uh, I think a couple of things. Uh, not, scholarship is not unanimous on that. There was a very liberal tradition that comes out of a type of Protestant exegesis that, that, that challenged that. Some of that did come into Catholic exegesis, but for the most part, uh, the tradition on that, the only one that really ever was seriously disputed was Hebrews, the question of the Pauline authorship of Hebrews. There are some that have claimed because of changes in vocabulary or more changes because of the state of the church, the sophistication of the church structure. They're not arguments that come necessarily from the text itself. Very frequently, there are theological assumptions or historical judgments that are brought to the text. For example, the pastoral situation of a church where there would be a bishop that would be presiding, that would be exercising a pastoral ministry, exercising apostolic authority, and also the reference to the apostolic tradition as being an ancient one. There are some that felt that is something that really is more proper in the second century and is not something you would find in the first century. Well, I think that really should be disputed. I, I don't think there's a real foundation for that. Uh, and there are a number of scripture scholars that have done a lot of great works on that uh, and have dealt with that, including you know, Scott Hahn, Ignatius Press, and, and people like that. I, mean, I can't give you a full answer. But uh, the, important th the, the fundamental thing, of course, in that instance is that it is in the canon, and it has been defined as inspired scripture, and therefore it's worthy of meditation and reflection. But a lot of times this stems from a hostility, I think, sort of a philosophic presupposition that is brought to the text, that is imposed on the text. Uh, Pope Benedict has spent a lot of time talking about this, and I think we may find some of this treated when the document from the Synod on Scripture comes out, because I think this was something that was discussed at the Synod, and I think we may see a clarification on that. Because these same scholars would also dispute even the, the sacred authorship of the Gospels. This was really not done by John and things like that. But I think there's something else at work there, not necessarily scholarship on the basis of the text. That's a brief answer, but we can talk more after if you like. Any other questions? Dr. Dolan, you mentioned um, the relationship uh, between uh, Paul and Peter, and I know many have made a big deal of that, that there was a real division between the two, and um, uh, you know, Paul confronting Peter, and uh, just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, sometimes it's a reference to Galatians where Paul actually rebukes Peter. Uh, but it was a situation where I think if properly understood, we could see why Paul would do that. Um, Peter and Paul had been taking meals in common together with Gentiles. Then there were a group of Judaizers that were very close to James who actually came. And then probably Peter, in an effort not to scandalize them or to show a welcome to them, withdrew from the Gentiles and began to eat with them. So it was probably well-intentioned, but Paul, seeing that, sees that this is, a, this is a real problem and could lead to a real misunderstanding about the very nature of the gospel itself. So he rebukes Peter 
at that time. But even there, it is a subtle way. It also involves a certain subtle testimony to the authority of Peter because Peter, in his position in the church, had the power to set a certain example. So much so that even Barnabas, who was Paul's close associate, goes off with Peter and begins to do the same thing that Peter was doing. So in a certain way, it indicates the authority. But I think a lot of that is, too much is made of that. It's just like sort of this distinction. Paul himself says, you know, Peter was given the, the, to preach the gospel to the circumcised, and, you know, I was given to the uncircumcised. But we have to remember that it is Peter, not Paul, who opens the doors to the Gentiles. It's Peter who has the vision in Acts of the Apostles, declares that all foods are clean. It is Peter who is the first one to baptize Uh, the centurion Cornelius and his whole household. And when there's disturbance back at Jerusalem, he simply tells, this is what I was meant to do, and the whole thing calms down. But Peter was the one who makes Paul's mission possible. Although it's certainly true that Paul obviously reached out to broad-based Gentile communities, and Peter might have been more comfortable working with Jewish Christian communities. But I think you, you can go overboard on that. I think, and overemphasizing as if there was some great conflict or division. You find the same type of thing, you know, with the understanding of James and his epistle as opposed to Romans and things like that, too. Yes? Um, I was just wondering if you uh, had any suggestions for a series of books or anything that might help. Um, I've been interested lately in trying to understand more of the actual culture in which Paul, I mean, I know it was inspired, but that he was writing in. I don't know. I don't know. But there, I mean, what you would have to do is there are some very good commentaries that bring up the cultural richnesses of that. There's a wonderful uh, non-Catholic commentary written by a man named William Barclay, who wrote a whole series of commentaries, and he has some wonderful commentaries on St. Paul. And he really has a love of history, and he goes into a lot of the cultural background that was found there. Uh, so that might be one thing that you could look at. Uh, Ricciotti is another Catholic writer who wrote a whole thing on, you know, St. Paul, Acts of the Apostles, and the mission of Paul. And he goes a lot of times, like when he goes to Corinth, what was the state of Corinth? What was the city like? What were the Greeks? What would he be speaking about here? Those would be works that you might be able to go to and get some help. Okay? Okay, last question. Yes. Hi. Uh, could you comment on the reliability of the Jerome um, biblical commentary or the I am not that familiar with the revised Jerome Biblical Commentary. The old one was considered a great work of scholarship, and it does have a wealth of great material in there. Uh, Yet, nevertheless, this is not my big field of expertise, by the way. Uh, Yet, nevertheless, I think you have to be attentive that there was a certain bias that was brought there, were a lot of things that were part of a very sort of popular type of exegesis and approach to Scripture at that time in the 60s and the 70s got in there that I think now would probably not be viewed quite so favorably. So I would, I mean, is it a good resource? Yes, there's a lot of great material in there, but it's not something that should be accepted uncritically. I think you would be a lot better off going with Navarre Bible, Ignatius Press, or something like that that's very much writing within the tradition. 
And even on the earlier question about the, the, the point of the authorship, um, when you have unanimous consensus you know, for thousands of years uh, by people who lived very close to the cultural situation. See, that's where, like, testimony from the apostolic fathers and the early fathers of the church, unlike today where there's so much social revolution and things like that, there was incredible cultural continuity between the Hebrew and the Greco-Roman world, particularly during the first four centuries, where that culture was still alive, it was still vibrant, the language was still very much spoken, and there was a real continuity. And when all of those people give testimony that these books were, in fact, written by Paul, to say suddenly that in the 19th century discovered, oh, that's all wrong, and this is why. But oftentimes, they'll be very scholarly, but if you look at the argument, the arguments are not coming from the text itself. It's not an exegesis based on the text. It's on historical and philosophical uh, presuppositions that are brought to the text and then imposed on the text. The same way, the same type of exegesis, well, they'll say that, like, the community invented many of these things. Why? Because we know miracles don't happen, all right? Since miracles don't happen, this has to be a later interpolation that was inserted in the text. Now, the problem you have that, like all of the teaching in the Gospel of John, is based upon miracles, the blind man is healed, and then you get the whole, I am the light of the world. Well, you can't have the light of the world without the miracle. So you end up basically destroying the whole gospel. Uh, not that all be- modern exegesis is bad. It's not, and I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn. But I think for most Catholics, there should be, you know, when you have sort of a unanimous tradition and constant testimony from so many different sources, too, from Africa, from Europe, from Asia, when so many different churches came to the same understanding that this was written by Paul, and Paul was recognized as a great man in his life. One of the reasons why he was sought out, arrested, and executed is because he was a leader of the Christian church. He was one of the great missionaries. If you had written a letter to that church, and we know that some of his letters were read liturgically, when he says in Colossians, be sure that the community reads this, that would be, you would keep that, absolutely. And you would preserve it, and you would guard it. And these things were preserved in those churches, and some of the earliest collections that we have are from those geographical regions. So when you have this sort of unanimous tradition, I mean, today everything that's sort of tradition is sort of poo-pooed, but that's, that's not really, I think, a very credible position to take. I think when tradition is so heavily weighted in that, we should receive that and give a great deal of weight to that, especially if there's no real, there is no real substantive argument other than something brought to the text which underneath it all involves a certain hostility to the church and to the notion of the church as being hierarchical. There are other problems that are involved that are being brought and then imposed on the text. It doesn't come from the text itself. Does that, does that help a little bit on the other question? Okay? All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right.